Well, good morning, church. Merry Christmas. There we go. There was this uh, scene in one of the episodes of the TV show, uh, Home Improvement, in which Tim, the tool man's son, had a part in the Christmas pageant at church. And Tim's son and, and three other boys each had a letter of the word Noel on their robes. Well, the Christmas pageant was going quite well when the time came for the boys, the four boys, to do their thing. To come onto the stage, stand in front of the audience to spell the word Noel. Well, the four kids lined up with their letters on their robes, but instead of it being in the correct order of N-O-E-L, they got it backwards and spelled L-E-O-N. Al Borlin, Tim's sidekick, leaned over to Tim's wife and asked, Who's Leon? (laughs) Who's Leon? You know, many have Christmas all backwards. While we may think of Christmas as a great opportunity for people to think about what it all means, sadly, it's also a time in which their unbelief is reinforced and the confusion about Christmas that grips them. Many can't distinguish between the songs they sing about Santa and carols that speak of a Savior in a manger. Angels are confused with flying reindeers, an ox in a stable with red-nosed reindeer, and Mary and Joseph are confused with North Pole elves. Santa is almost viewed as deity since he knows whether you've been bad or good, and he knows when you're asleep or awake. It's all convoluted, and frankly, the Christian community hasn't always been very helpful in removing the confusion. For the last 2,000 years, we have spruced up, jazzed up, dressed up, doctored up the Christmas story, and people are going, who's Leon? Consider what the Christian church has done to the nativity story over the years. We've inserted all kinds of cultural and mythological additions to the story, and what we have done in many cases is get in the way for others to discover the heart of the matter. I mean, do we, do we send mixed messages? I mean, I don't want your Santa, but you should take my three ships that come sailing in. Whatever that means. I don't want your happy holiday, but I want you to accept my merry little additions to the season. And it's all very confusing. The legends told of the time Satan and his demons were having a Christmas party. And as the demonic guests were preparing to depart... One demon grinned and said, Merry Christmas, your majesty. At that, Satan replied, Keep it merry, my friend. If they ever get serious about it, we'll all be in trouble. Now, if you know me at all, you know I'm, I'm, I'm all for being festive. <laughs> Let's have a good time. I'm good with that. There should be plenty of joy in the air. I mean, you hear the word serious and you think gloomy. No, gloomy faces are for religious people, but should not describe those who have been impacted by the true meaning and significance of the Christmas story. So yes, Merry Christmas. That's in order. That's appropriate. But let's be serious to make sure we don't have Christmas all backwards. You see, Christmas 
has no, uh, no, no biblical meaning without God. It starts with God. It comes from God. Christmas is all about something God initiated. Jesus is the answer. He is the answer to getting Christmas right side up. Now, I read there was this this uh, a billboard and wrote under that and under that under that um, on that billboard was the phrase Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer was on this billboard. Well, someone came along and wrote under that phrase Jesus is the answer. These words, what is the question? What what is the question? That's fair. What's the question? What is Jesus the answer to? All right, I hope you're there. Luke chapter 2 this morning, a familiar story, of course. Yeah, every pastor ought to preach on this when it comes to the Christmas morning or the Sunday before Christmas. And so, this year, I haven't always done this, but this year I am falling right in stride in that. But let's look at Luke chapter 2 with me this morning. I'm going to go back to verse 1 prior to the ones that were read earlier uh, from, from Dan. But chapter 2, verse 1, first heading this morning is the birth. Then we'll look at the announcement and then the response. Not that complicated. The birth, the birth. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Luke. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Then down verse 3 tells us that everyone went to his own town to register. That would include Joseph. Now, the stage here is being set for the birth. You know this. God is ordering all the events. Galatians 4.4 reminds us that when the time had fully come, God sent his son well, since the beginning of time as we know it, God has been orchestrating the events of the unfolding plan of redemption. And where would, where would uh, this birth, uh, where would Jesus be born? Well, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we're told the exact town. It would be Bethlehem. And so the virgin mother and her soon-to-be husband lived in Nazareth. So this census is God's way to get this couple to Bethlehem. And since Joseph was in the line of David and a descendant of Bethlehem, when the census is taken, he's forced, like many others, to go to his hometown with Mary to register by kin and clan. And the journey is about uh, 100 miles, give or take. That's what tells us chapter, uh, verse 4 of chapter 2. Verse 4 says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Mary was expecting a child. Now another translation puts it this way, And Mary was great with child. Great with child, right? We would say she was very pregnant. I mean, she's ready to have a baby. Now, I can't really speak to this with any sense of cred credibility, uh, but many of you could. You're closing in on your, on your due date, and I can safely guess that the last thing you want to do is, is a hundred-mile walk across the desert, or worse, on the back of a donkey. I mean, what if in all the bumps in the road, this baby comes early and a delivery takes place by the side of the road? 
Well, Joseph, with very pregnant Mary, travels to the town of Joseph's birthplace. Now, often our picture is that Mary barely makes it to Bethlehem, and as soon as she arrives, her water breaks, and the baby is born. Well, verse 6 instructs us, no, no, while they were there, while they were there, verse 6, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Now, that isn't very dramatic. The greatest event in human history is summarized in Luke's account in two verses. No mention of pounds and ounces, no description of the baby looked like, no drama of the actual delivery. It's quite succinct. And have you noticed the brevity in which the gospel writers give to the most dramatic event in all of history? Matthew gives us the background to the birth, but doesn't even give one verse on Mary delivering the child. The gospel writer Mark doesn't give any verses to Jesus' birth. And John, the gospel writer John, mentions no child being born, yet presents this glorious argument for the one who came as fully man and fully God. Gospel writer Luke here gives a little more attention to all that led up to Jesus' birth, but as we see here, only two verses that speak to Mary actually delivering the child into the world. Listen, the drama isn't in the description. It isn't isn't focused on the sentimental things to which we so often attach great significance. It is in the events. It is all about Jesus. I mean, there's a staggering simplicity here. The matter-of-fact approach forces us to consider the fact of the matter. Jesus was born and was placed in a manger. And why did she place baby Jesus in the manger? The answer is given, the end of verse 7, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, it's right here, if not even earlier than this, if it were possible, I would hit the erase button on all the thoughts and images that come to your mind around the birth of Christ and have you start with a clean page and read the birth narratives as if it were for the very first time. Because it gets all mixed up in here. What if in your lifetime, when it came to verse 7, you heard these words instead of what you have always heard? She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them in the guest room. It can be translated that way. Really. Mary and Joseph are forced to bed down in a stable with the animals. Don't Picture a pristine place like our manger scenes or the stables you might see at a local fair that are all tidy and clean. It's not what it is. Think two-level houses where there was this lower level where the animals would be brought in at night for safety and warmth, and then the upper level that would be the living space. And then you would find on this upper level these feeding troughs, these mangers. 
exactly at head level for the animals standing below to eat from. Folks, this was a dirty, stable, uh, dirty, smelly, noisy, uh, crude place for anyone, let alone a baby. Certainly not an appropriate place for any woman to give birth. It was a very humble beginning. Now, there's something else about the birth that can easily be missed. It is significant on two accounts that Luke mentions back in verse 1 that the birth took place in the days of Caesar Augustus. It's significant on two accounts. On one, on one account, one reason is that it's significant, that it tells us that it was, took place in the days of Caesar Augustus, is that we're dealing with real historical events. This isn't some nice story or myth or fable. It is a record of history. This took place in the days of Caesar Augustus. But there's a second reason that this is significant, that he mentions this of Caesar Augustus, that's very, very relevant. I believe Luke intentionally draws a contrast between the birth of Jesus and the glory of Caesar Augustus. Augustus was arguably the greatest of all Roman Caesars. His name, Augustus, actually meant holy or revered one. It was a, it was a title reserved for the gods in the Roman Empire that was given to this name Augustus. Augustus, he clawed his way to the top of the political world through some military success. But he was considered like, like a god. As a matter of fact, when he died, people comforted themselves by saying that Augustus was a god and gods could not die. One inscription even called Augustus the savior of the whole world. In contrast now, we have the arrival of Jesus. The true savior of the world. Born to unknown Obscure parents in a, in, a, in a tiny village. You have this little insignificant town of Bethlehem that is full of people, angry people who are forced to disrupt, disrupt their lives to accommodate a very wealthy and powerful king who just wanted their money. Contrast that with God who became needy to reach the needy. Now, if someone was inventing, if someone was inventing the coming of the Messiah, certainly they wouldn't do it this way. The greatest birth of all time in a feeding trough with animals as, as, as his companions. Who would believe that one? Well, that's exactly what happens. That's precisely what's written down. Truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, you don't invent this. You, you can't make this stuff up. The Savior of the world, born in the shelter of animals and laid in a feeding trough. Well, we have the birth. What comes next? The announcement. You've got to have an announcement. If there's a birth, right? We have the announcement. Birth announcement's a big business. It's a boy. It's a girl. I read of, of, of these six-year-olds in their Sunday school class who were reenacting the story 
of the birth of Jesus. And the teacher wanted them to kind of stage it themselves based on their own idea of it. And, and, and it was very interesting. These, these six-year-olds, they had three Marys and two Josephs and six shepherds and two wise guys and one who played the cow. Another boy decided he, he would be the doctor who would deliver the baby. Hmm, pretty good. The teacher kind of went along with it. And so the little doctor went back behind the manger, picked up the doll, and carefully wrapped it in the blanket. And then with a big smile on his face, he turned to the Marys and the Josephs. He said, congratulations, it's a God. It's a God. <laughs> well, they got that one right. God entered the world as a baby, entered incognito. Well, how would anyone know of this stupendous event? God had to announce it to someone. Well, how does God choose to get the word out? You know the story. Verse 8 tells us, and there were shepherds, follow along here, verse 8, and there were shepherds sitting around a campfire singing folk songs. It's kind of what we picture. They're just kind of nice guys, decent guys. They're just kind of strumming their guitars, having a good time. No. These, these shepherds, they're not like that at all. Truth is, shepherding was a despised occupation. You wouldn't want your daughter or your sister to ever date a shepherd. They were seen as outcasts in the Jewish society, only one rung up from lepers. People thought of them as shady, dishonest people. They were not allowed to worship in the temple because they were considered unclean. And I go, of all the people God could choose, he chose to announce the most significant event the world has ever known to a handful of loser shepherds. Now, for up to you, for up to me, wouldn't we have the angel announce this to the religious leaders at the temple? Or maybe gone to the governor or, or to the king? This great news that people from all the, over the world are still talking about began with a ragtag bunch of shepherds. Why? Why did God enter their world to tell them of the one born in a stable? Well, for one thing, the shepherds understood animals. They would have understood the manger. That was their world. They wouldn't have understood the world of Augustus, the world of the priests. They lived in the world of animals. God entered their worlds. Let that sink in. God enters our worlds. He enters where we live. God entered the world in this way so he could feel what we feel. It's my understanding that when you have two pianos in the same room and they are, they are uh, perfectly in tune with each other, that if you strike the chord on one piano, the same corresponding note or strings in the other piano will actually vibrate. Correct me if I'm not, not right on that, but that's what I, I read and it would seem to be backed up. It's called sympathetic resonance. God has the same thing with us because of Jesus. 
When a note is struck in your life, God feels it. It resonates with him. He entered the world to know what it feels like to be human. He enters your world today in whatever it is that's going on in your life. The chord is struck. It resonates with him. He entered the world of the shepherds, the outcasts. Notice their reaction here. Look with me at verse 9. Follow along with me, verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And then what happened? It says they were blasé and unmoved. (laughs) They said to one another, that's kind of cool. No, it says they were terrified. In the original it says it scared the living daylights out of them. All right, that's a loose translation. It's really Brian's translation. But literally it does say this. They were afraid with great fear. They were scared out of their wits. Do you know fear? Doesn't fear characterize the mood of the day? Doesn't it? I don't want to go on side roads here, but doesn't it? The times in which we live, many are living in fear. You got to work that out yourself. It's not pointing fingers here. It's stating an obvious fact. Fear is so real and part of our makeup that it's no wonder that we, have, that we find the words fear not in Scripture 360 times or so. And so the angel says to the shepherds, do not be afraid. Why not? What replaces fear? What is the answer to great fear that so often rules our lives? Well, as trite as it sometimes sounds, Jesus is the answer. He really is the answer to our fears. That's what verse 10 is all about. Let's not miss it. We've read this a million times, but let's not miss this. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Where's that joy found? Let's not get, all, get this all backwards here. Verse 11 states it plainly. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. He is the Lord. Jesus is the answer. To what? What is the question? Well, he's the answer to the ultimate, uh, our, our ultimate human predicament. What is the human predicament? He is God's answer to our human predicament of sin. Because we can't do anything about it in and of ourselves. But if you can't see your, your predicament, then Jesus is the answer. It means nothing to you at all today. Until you come to that place where you see that only Jesus can save you from your human predicament of sin and you cannot save yourself, he isn't the answer at all. All right, how do you respond? How do you respond to this birth announcement? Well, we come to the third thing, the response. Well, the birth and announcement are such a big deal that one angel isn't enough to express praise Verse 13 says that suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared 
with the angel praising God. You see, one angel will suffice to deliver the news, but the ultimate meaning of the news, it requires a multitude of angels, too many angels to count. I can imagine myself that every angel in heaven showed up for this event. It's a guess. But it is multitude. And the angels praise God saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now here's, here's the real meaning and the application of our passage this morning, all wrapped up in verse 14. I don't want us to miss this. I ask the question, does his favor rest on you? Peace is spread everywhere this child is received. But what is with this peace? Well, the peace on earth that many of our Christmas cards speak of will not be realized until Christ comes again. The Prince of Peace will reign over the entire world someday, and then there will be perfect peace. So I cannot visualize, as the bumper sticker says, world peace. There is a day, not here. But there is a peace, though, that God wants for you in this lifetime. Well, okay, how do we get it? Do we just sing over and over and over and over? All we are saying is give peace a chance? Is that what we do? We just need to give peace a chance. Is that it? As Mark Twain who once said, from his cradle to his grave, a man never does a single thing which has any first and foremost object save one to secure peace of mind for himself. See, we're all after it. What is it though? How do we get it? Is it something within us that just needs to be found and expressed? Many people think that's the gospel right there. It, we just need peace. Give it a chance. Let there be peace on earth. That's the gospel. See, in pulpits across this country on the Sunday before Christmas, it really is give peace a chance. And those preachers won't speak of the glorious God and the sovereign Jesus, but will tell you give peace a chance. We must keep together what the angels kept together. Verse 14, glory to God, peace to us. Glory to God, peace to us. Listen, if you have no interest in or love for the glory of God, but you want peace, you won't get it. You have Christmas all backwards. It was John Piper who said it this way, God's purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. He will be your peace by being your God. For peace to rule in our lives is for Jesus to rule in our lives. And so the peace promised by God, it cannot be acquired through any of the countless consumer items of our materialistic society. Peace cannot be purchased. It cannot be charged with a credit card. It cannot be worn. It cannot be eaten. It cannot be driven. It cannot be hung in a closet or stored on a shelf or stashed in a safe deposit box. These may give you peace for a moment, but it will not last. See, peace is not something we work up ourselves. It does not come by any human endeavor. Come on now, you can do it. Just give peace a chance, you know. No, no, not give peace a chance. Give Christ a chance. 
Give all the pieces of your life to him, asking him to assemble it. The problem with sin, you can't fix it. To tell you that you can, that's not good news at all. The good news is this, Colossians 1 verse 20 tells us, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. How do we know this peace? By welcoming the peacemaker, by receiving Jesus. See, peace begins with God. He doesn't make peace in the manger, he makes peace by his shed blood on the cross. I ask you, do you know this peace? Dale Moody put it this way. He said, a great many people are trying to make peace. That's already been done. God has not left it for us to do. All we have to do is enter into it. Have you entered into it this morning? If you're here today and you're all confused by Christmas, you haven't had it all backwards, I'd invite you to take as a gift the provision God has made for you through Jesus Christ. And by having peace with God, you can then have the peace of God. Let's not get it backwards. It's glory to God, peace to us. Glory to God, peace to us. Is God the most glorious person in your life? Are you living for for what God wants of you? I mean, that's... That's the bottom line. Christmas is about what Christ wants. Christmas is about what Christ wants. We have it all backwards. We think it's about what we want. It was after Christmas that a little girl was asked, did you get everything you wanted for Christmas? Right? You'll ask someone that. I mean, you'll hear it asked, right? Everyone asked, did you get everything you wanted for Christmas? Well, when this girl was asked, did you get everything you wanted for Christmas, the little girl replied confidently, no, no. But then again, it's not my birthday. Bingo. Mouth of babes. Make it personal this year. Give Jesus what he wants. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your soul. He wants your praise because Christmas is all about what Christ wants. What do you need to give Jesus? What gift do you need to give him? What will it cost you? Gloria Gaitha tells the story of her daughter's fear of cameras. She had a fear of cameras. And because of their popularity as a family in the music business, as the Gaithers, she and her family were always being photographed. Her daughter at three or four years of age became terrified of cameras and would actually become hysterical whenever someone pointed a camera at her. Well, as a result, Bill, her father, had no picture of her to show when he traveled with other dads. One time in their family devotions, it was brought out that a gift should always cost something of ourselves. It should always cost something of ourselves. So shortly after this, the young daughter said to her mother, Mom, uh, Dad has no picture of me to show other dads, does he? 
Well, you know, I want to get a picture. I want to give him a picture of me this Christmas. It, well, you know what that means, the mother said. Yes, she answered, a little terrified. Gloria said, well, I want you to go think about it and be sure, and then you come back and tell me if you really want to do it. Well, a couple of days went by, and the girl then came back and said, Mom, I really think you should make the appointment for me to get my picture taken. When the day came, the mom got all her, get her all dressed up beautifully and fixed up her hair just right and then went off to the photographer. Gloria shared, the mom shared as they walked holding hands into the studio, she could feel her daughter's grip so tight that her little fingernails left imprints on the palm of mom's hand. She let go and the girl went and sat down and the photographer was able to get a great smile on on his first shot and, and then he made it through two more shots before the tears just began to run down the face of the daughter. Well, on Christmas morning, when it came to her dad opening up that gift, his eyes were flooded with tears because he understood the great sacrifice his little daughter had made for those three pictures. Will you ask this Christmas season, Lord, what is it that you want It's your birthday. (laughs) What is it that you want? Maybe it's a fear he wants you to face. Perhaps the best gift you can give to someone, be it your spouse or, or your children or the church family, is some change that you know God wants of your life. Because Christmas is all about what Christ wants. What does Christ want? What does Christ want of me? And what will it cost me? What will it cost me? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story that really should never, ever get old. It's very familiar to us. We kind of read in the words before it's even read. And I pray in all the familiarity of it, we wouldn't lose its impact, its meaning, its significance, that what it is that you really want us to grab a hold of for our lives. May we ask the question, God, what is it you want of me? What do you want? I've given lists to other people what I want. What do you want? And we just kind of settle there. I mean, celebrate well. Be festive, absolutely. This ought to be great joy. It is a Merry Christmas. But you also ask us to get serious about it too. And so maybe we find that balance. Maybe it swung one way over the other too much. Maybe get back to the center again. Remember, it's all about you. That's what we come around communion remembering this morning. It's all about you. Lead us in that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the deal. The gift of salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. 
Consider the great cost to Christ for our salvation. It cost him separation, abandonment with his father. It cost him emotional, physical pain. Church, our forgiveness did not come, come cheap. The gift of salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. It cost Jesus his, his life. No price so great has ever been paid for a gift. Peter, 1 Peter 1, 18 says, It was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you're redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. The cost to have peace with God was covered by Jesus Christ. 